0: Welcome to Inside the Hut. I'm your host, Brooke Pollock, founder of Hut Capital. Inside the Hut is a podcast that talks with leading blockchain venture capital investors to dive deep into their firm, strategy, and approach to a complex space at the forefront of innovation. You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and other podcast players, or on our website at www.hutcapital.com. The content of each episode of Inside the HUD is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any HUD Capital fund. Please note that HUD Capital and its affiliates may also maintain or be considering investments in or related to the company's funds, assets, or strategies discussed in the podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments and related disclosures, please see www.hudcapital.com. Welcome, everyone, to this week's episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. Excited to have with us this week, Matt Walsh, co-founder of Castle Island Ventures. Castle Island is an early stage blockchain venture capital firm that Matt co-founded with his partner, Nick Carter, back in 2018. So thanks so much for joining us, Matt.
1: Brooke, thanks for having me on. Good to see you.
0: You as well. To get started, we'd love to just hear about your background, introduction to yourself, and how you got to be where you are today.
1: Sure. Yeah, so I grew up in Boston, where I live now. Went to Babson College, was a finance major there, became a management consultant out of undergrad. This was before crypto was a thing. So did a few years of management consulting and then worked at a company called Clear Channel in their internal strategy group. Went back to business school in 2012, had always been very interested in just emerging technologies. So it was one of these people that read TechCrunch every day, was always on TechMeme and heard about Bitcoin when I was in business school and started to read up on it, started to hang out in the Reddit forums, started to hang out on the Bitcoin talk forums. So fast forward a couple of years, I took a job at Fidelity in the strategy group initially before I was on the venture side of the house. And in 2014, was part of this firm-wide initiative to just understand disruptive scenarios in the technology space that could impact what Fidelity looks like on a 10-year time horizon. And on the list of things to understand was Bitcoin. And I was in the right place at the right time. I was one of the only people that was really into Bitcoin and certainly could explain it, at least at a, what I thought it was back then. And so we looked at this scenario of the future called frictionless capital markets. And so this idea that something like Bitcoin could effectuate a peer-to-peer settlement of securities at some point in the future. And out of that, there was this firm-wide initiative to really just understand the technology better. So, spent about two years on the applied R and D side of the house at Fidelity, just really trying to build things, trying to study things, trying to talk to early stage startups. We were building payment wallets on Bitcoin. We started mining Bitcoin when Ethereum came out. We started tinkering with smart contracts. Spent a lot of time on private blockchains. A lot of wasted time, maybe, on private blockchains, but really tried to understand that that side of the world. And over time, I'd say we came up with a thesis at an enterprise level. Part of that involved investing in early stage companies in the blockchain space. And so started a fund initially under Fidelity's umbrella that Nick joined, and we were doing that off of Fidelity's balance sheet. So predecessor fund to Castle Island, making early stage investments, also doing token investments. In 2018, we left to go independent to start Castle Island, and sort of the rest is history. It's been a good run. We're on our third fund now and still doing the same thing we were doing initially. So investing in early stage companies all in the blockchain space.
0: That's awesome to hear. Fidelity was clearly ahead of the curve in terms of getting interested and spending a lot of time in the blockchain crypto space. Why do you think they were so open to it back in the early days?
1: It's funny because so many of these companies that are in or adjacent to the crypto space right now have talented young people that are at least interested in the technology, that that are very deep in it, that want to do something, that see the opportunity but very few companies have senior leadership that is bought into this and is bought into an R&D agenda where it might not be obvious that there's a business to be built. And so if you rewind to 2014 the CEO of Fidelity, Abby Johnson, and her senior leadership team were very open-minded to just spending a couple of years on the R&D side without a tangible business case. It later became obvious that Fidelity Digital Assets, the custody and trade execution business, was going to be a good idea and was going to be something where Fidelity would be able to build an entire business unit But in the early days, it was really just this R&D agenda. So we used to have these weekly meetings with senior leadership, and we'd just bring in interesting startups. We would talk about the technology. We would talk about some of the use cases. And really, there was no money to be made in the early days. So I think what really put Fidelity as a differentiated player in the space was just the foresight to spend a lot of time understanding things and it was really in the dna of fidelity because in the early days of the internet i'm told that it was the exact same thought process so there was a team that was really trying to understand what impact would the internet have on the brokerage industry how would fidelity have to evolve and eventually that paid dividends obviously the internet is part of everyone's business but fidelity was very early to that internet wave and i think it was the same thing in the crypto space so i am really proud to have started my career there and just a tremendous organization. Right now, a lot of people in that business unit. So I think it's really borne fruit, just this ability to persevere through these bear markets where it wasn't obvious that there was even a business to be built.
0: How large is Fidelity's crypto team these days?
1: Yeah, I don't know if they're public with it, but I believe there's over 500 people that are in and around the custody business, the trade execution business. Obviously, Fidelity has a Bitcoin ETF filing out there. So it's a pretty sizable business unit and really a great product. It's a very secure custody product. It has a great trade execution platform. And really looking forward to what they see on the asset management side as well. I think that'll be a big catalyst in 2014 with the Bitcoin ETF coming out and some of the other products that could potentially follow that ETF. Obviously, that's a core business to Fidelity writ large, just this asset management business. So it'll be really exciting to see where they go with that Fidelity digital assets business.
0: Yeah. And when you say Bitcoin ETF, I assume you mean 2024, not
1: 2014. (laughs) Bitcoin ETF 2024, for sure. Yeah. So looking for hopefully early January of 2024 for that approval. Fingers crossed, right?
0: Yeah. Fingers crossed indeed. So you're at Fidelity. What made you want to leave and start your own firm?
1: It was a great place to work. And so nothing about the transition had anything to do with Fidelity. It was really just about wanting to be an entrepreneur. And so Nick and I were sitting there and seeing that there's this wave of technology coming. And so we were seeing just really promising startups, not only in the Bitcoin space, but in all of these new L1s that were launching and just started to see this infrastructure that was not there. And so whether or not you believe that it was going to be Bitcoin that was the killer app or US dollars on chain or eventually securities actually coming on chain, it was clear that there were these gaps around trade execution, market data, exchanges. And there were some fairly obvious businesses to build. And we thought one of those obvious businesses to build would be an early stage venture fund that got really in the weeds on some of these infrastructure categories and worked with the founders to get distribution with traditional financial services and really made a bet early on this convergence between blockchains and financial services. And just started to look at all the categories that existed in other asset classes. Imagine if credit default swaps were invented tomorrow, what would you need? You'd need trade execution platforms, you'd need compliance software, you'd need market data. And just none of that existed in the blockchain space back then. And so we really saw the opportunity to build a franchise and to become entrepreneurs ourselves, investing in some of those businesses that we thought could be generational businesses, if and when blockchain started to scale, which luckily they did.
0: Awesome. So tell us more about Castle Island. Maybe just start with a firm overview and what it looks like today.
1: Sure. So we're investing out of our third fund now. That's a $250 million fund. The strategy really hasn't changed that much over time. So we believe that there are three big catalysts, three big macro drivers in the blockchain space. One is the monetary use case. So things that are non-sovereign money like Bitcoin and ETH, but also just stable coins. So this idea that dollarization is happening on a global scale through stable coins The second big bucket is financial services. And so we sort of hit on this in the intro where there's just an enormous amount of GDP tied up in these financial intermediaries. And blockchain technology represents this ability to alleviate some of that and to return some of that surplus to the actual users of the platforms. So we see that in DeFi right now. And I think where that is going over time will be more real-world assets represented on-chain, peer-to-peer settlements. I think there's a big surface area in financial services for this technology. And then the third bucket, we always called it decentralized internet architecture. And obviously, Web3 is what ended up sticking as a tagline there. But this idea that blockchains could represent this ability to build community-owned software. What if you could target a data monopoly business model like a Google or a Facebook, but have the users actually own their own data and bring that to the network. So we started to see the early glimpses of this with things like Filecoin and SIA and Storage, some of the storage networks. But over time, that's really proliferated. Obviously, there's been this wave of NFTs as another category within this Web3 bucket. We really try to focus on what are the infrastructure categories below those three big megatrends. And so it comes back to things that I mentioned around, okay, It doesn't matter if it's ETH or an NFT, you're going to need compliance software, you're going to need custody services, you're going to need market data. There's a lot of agnostic infrastructure to invest in that really enables some of these end applications. So our funds have always focused on those infrastructure categories. We invest in 25 names per fund. It's about 80% equity investments, roughly 20% things that will have tokens. And yeah, we're based up here in Boston, still have a presence in New York and Miami as well.
0: Okay, great. When you guys were getting going and maybe in the early days of Castle Island, I think some folks out there saw you as Bitcoin Maxis. And I recall you guys, I think you had a podcast about it. You're talking about, I think John Pfeiffer was his name, about his paper and basically saying ETH isn't going to capture value. And obviously that hasn't played out, at least if you look at the market cap of ETH today. I guess curious, one, do you think that Bitcoin Max label was ever a fair representation? And two, curious how your views on this have evolved over time?
1: Yeah, it's funny. I don't think it was ever a fair representation if you just look at what we were doing with the capital. And so certainly have invested in ETH over time. Nick was actually a Monero maxi when I met him for the first time before he joined Fidelity. So he was one of these guys that was really deep in that project. You mentioned Pfeffer, though. I think that's a really seminal paper that was written in this industry. It's called An Institutional Investor's Take on Crypto Assets. The main argument that he was making was around utility tokens. And so the example I like to use is gasoline is not something that we hoard. You'll go and you'll fill up your gas tank when you need it. And you're not going to store a huge vat of gasoline in your backyard. And in the early days of ETH, I would say, there was some of that dynamic where the argument was that ETH would just be gas to pay for this world computer. And so you'd use ETH in order to power a smart contract in order to run an application. And I think Pfeffer's main argument was, look, this thing could be very useful to the world, but unless it has a monetary premium, unless people start to see this as money, the velocity on the network will be quite high. And it would follow that the actual value of the asset need not be very high as a total market cap. I thought that was a really instructive way to think about it. And I think Pfeffer was pretty clear to say, look, this will not hold true if people start to see ETH as this non-sovereign store of value. If people actually see the use case of ETH, as to just hold it because they think it's a proxy for digital gold or internet native money if the velocity were to slow down. And I think what happened after that paper was published is that the Ethereum development community really leaned into that idea that the only way for the token to actually accrue meaningful value over time, outside of just using it to pay gas fees, would be if people held it. And so the big change there was EIP-1559 with this burn mechanism that really started to take ETH off the market. And so now I certainly see ETH as a proxy for a digital gold alternative. I think it's squarely in that bucket of Bitcoin. It certainly has more to offer than Bitcoin in terms of utility and the ability to actually launch applications on top of it. But I would argue that the principal value of ETH is really in this non-sovereign money category. Now, if I look elsewhere in the ecosystem, L1s and L2s that don't have a similar functionality, it's still really hard for me to wrap my head around the network value of some of these tokens. If the only thing the token is used for is to procure a resource digitally, why would you store it over time? Like, why would you want to hold your wealth in it? You don't hold your wealth in arcade tokens. They're really valuable to you when you're in the arcade to pay for the game, but you would just swap in from your native currency, US dollars, maybe Bitcoin, maybe ETH, into these tokens on a one-time use. I would say the the Pfeffer paper holds up, but the Ethereum crowd really got it, I would say. I don't know that it was necessarily Pfeffer that drove it home, but this idea that you need to compete for the monetary use case as an L1, I think is very firmly entrenched now in this industry.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So maybe getting into the Castle Island strategy a bit more, outline the three focus areas for you guys. Sounds like you do invest in both equity and tokens. I think you guys have been, at least maybe during the first half of your existence, talked a lot about a lot of uncertainty around the broad spectrum of tokens being securities. Likewise, has your view on that changed over time? And how do you get comfortable when you're making token investments around how they're going to be treated from a regulatory perspective?
1: So when we got started back in 2016 at Fidelity Investing, but then in 2018 going independent, I would say a lot of these things were securities. A lot of these things were being offered to the public via ICOs, were just throw up an ETH address and people would invest in these things. No KYC. So I'd say there was a lot of froth in the market back then and just not a lot of legal analysis, I would say, in terms of how to launch these things. And the tokens were really pseudo equity at the end of the day. So I think the case that the SEC had that a lot of these things were unregistered securities at the time was quite right. I would say that has evolved over time. And so now you see more utility for these things pre-launch. I'd say you say better structuring in the market as well. Over time, I think we've started to invest more in that category. In the early days, it was heavy on things like BTC and ETH that were clearly not securities. But over time, I think the models have gotten better. But I'll caveat and say that I think a lot of these things still out there were launched as unregistered securities. And so it's a big issue to Go back and address some of these things. And I think the safe harbor proposal that Hester Peirce has proposed out of the SEC has never really gotten legs, but it would provide a foundation for a project that might have raised under suspicious grounds to eventually show decentralization of a network, to prove that the asset is now a commodity, and to have this sort of grandfathering in process, so to speak. So we'll see where that goes. But I would say the rigor on the token launch side by entrepreneurs has greatly improved over time.
0: Okay, interesting. I guess one area you guys have been pretty vocally interested in is the stablecoin category. Obviously, you can buy a stablecoin. Hopefully, it's always worth a dollar, unless it's Terra. But aside from that, you can't really make money owning a stablecoin. What's the investment opportunity there? Why is that a category you guys are excited about?
1: So dollars on chain has always been the holy grail for a lot of these use cases in the institutional channel. And so if you think about all of the projects that folks were trying to do back in the 2014-15 time period around issuing a security on a blockchain and then trying to settle it, none of it would work unless you were able to get that dollar on chain. And so in the early days, people weren't even calling these stable coins, but there was this idea of a sponsor issuing a dollar, putting it on a blockchain, immobilizing it somewhere. And I think all of that is still required if we're going to move to the world where we do things like overnight repo on a blockchain. Now, what really took off though was stablecoins on international exchanges. And so that really put Tether on the map, eventually USDC on the map. So when you think about the investable categories for us in the stablecoin space, I'd say one is payments. And so if you look at just the international usage of stable coins, it's skyrocketing. I think we're talking to something like two or three remittance players a week in terms of new companies being formed. that are using stable coins just as a basis to get dollars from the United States into other countries as a remittance use case. So we see corridors in Latin America, we see corridors in Africa, Southeast Asia, and it's really just this emergent behavior of circumnavigating around Western Union and some of these other payment rails. And just anyone in the world with an Ethereum address can now receive a dollar. So I think the payments use cases and the payments companies are interesting. I think the international exchanges, the regulated on and off ramps in all of these countries are also fascinating. And so we're investors in a company called Yellow Card in Africa, does quite a bit of stablecoin volume. Pintu in Indonesia is a big player in that space. So that's another really interesting category. Then the third one, I would say, is just the issuers of these things. It would be great to be an investor in something like a circle, for instance. So someone that is bringing a stablecoin to bear. We've invested in a company called Mountain, which is doing an interest-bearing stablecoin out of bermuda so i think that's an interesting way to play the thesis as well so a lot of different categories none of them involve actually buying stable coins as an early stage venture investor as you point out a dollar is a dollar unless you're terra but really some interesting ways to play it
0: okay interesting yeah you mentioned circle what do you make of usdc losing share to usdt over the past year and a half and is tether something that we should be worried about
1: The USDC thing has been fascinating because they're almost a victim of their own success from a transparency perspective. And so if you look at the big catalyst for just dollars flowing out of that ecosystem, I think it was the DPEG around Silicon Valley Bank weekend when USDC had something like $3 billion tied up at that bank. And obviously, that came back to parity, but it was trading at below 90 cents on the dollar for that weekend. So I think there was a trust issue there, whereas Tether at the time was very opaque and it was unclear where the reserves were. I don't worry too much about Tether. I think there's been a lot of things over the years with Tether that were probably quite questionable. Cantor Fitzgerald has come out and said that they hold the treasuries on behalf of Tether right now, which I think is the reserves at Tether north of $80 billion. So this is certainly a systemically important institution in the crypto space. But it seems clear that Cantor Fitzgerald has the backing. I'm sure that Tether entity will evolve over time. Seems like they're cooperating with law enforcement on blacklisting addresses and freezing funds that are tied to known bad actors, but I don't lose a lot of sleep at the moment about Tether.
0: Okay. That's great to hear. Yeah. I think the, speaking of Cantor Fitzgerald, one of their C-level guys is on TV the other day saying how he loves Bitcoin and loves Tether. So that was a very interesting thing to see.
1: That was a wild interview. Yeah. That's certainly (laughs) more knowledge about the space than you would see out of a typical CEO at one of these institutions.
0: Yeah, I think my favorite part was how he called the having the doubling, or it was something like that, which I just found amusing. But as a background strategy, curious about Bitcoin mining. I don't know if you guys have invested in this space historically. You saw a bunch of investing in Bitcoin chip makers and hardware manufacturers of mining rigs back in the day. I feel like you haven't seen that as much recently. Do you guys ever look at Bitcoin mining related companies? Is there much venture investment opportunity there?
1: I would say we've looked at just about everyone over the years since 2014, and we have not done investments in this category out of the fund. It's a tough category for a few reasons. One is that it's very capital intensive. And so as an early stage venture investor, you really have to factor in a lot of dilution over time in these businesses. They're going to have to go raise a lot of money. And so from a venture perspective, less attractive from that side of the thing. The other issue is really historically around the derivatives market. And so the ability to actually hedge the risk as a miner until recently really hasn't been there. And so a lot of these miners were just going just long Bitcoin at the end of the day. And so really just a levered bet on the underlying. And so I think that'll change over time. You've obviously seen very sophisticated CEOs start to get into this business that have a background in derivatives that understand how to take risk off the table, lock in prices. So I think it's maturing, but that has historically been a reason not to play there. And and then the other thing is just staying up with the upgrade cycle. It's It's a business that is very predicated on getting access to these ASICs. And so if you miss a refresh cycle or if you've poorly planned your capital allocation schedule and you can't get the latest units for whatever reason, you're really out of the game. So there's a lot of ways to go wrong. We have, like I said, looked at a number of plays in this category, but have yet to deploy capital against it.
0: Okay, interesting. As of late, there's been a lot of talk around ETH and Solana and Solana's making a comeback. I guess curious from your perspective, if you look at your portfolio, particularly like in the more real world assets, stablecoin side of things, where are you seeing people build on? And for Castle Island's portfolio success, does it really matter what people build on? Or as long as they're building somewhere and building interesting businesses, that's all that matters at the end of the day?
1: I think it's the latter, although we certainly pay attention to it. So if I were to look at our portfolio, I'd say the number one ecosystem is ETH and other EVM chains in terms of where folks are building. Second would actually be Solana. So quite a bit of activity in Solana, especially the past couple of years. And it's been fascinating to see that community really hang in there through the FTX debacle where FTX owned about 10% of the total supply. We certainly see a lot of startup activity in the Solana ecosystem. Third would probably be Bitcoin and associated Bitcoin L2s, which seem to be getting some adoption, especially over the past 12 months. I don't think it really matters at the end of the day for a lot of the companies that we're investing in because the switching costs, they are worthy of consideration, are not enormous. And so the ability to port a product over to a different blockchain, it's not something that you'd have to really pivot the business. It's really more of a technology implementation. I really have this view that There will be even more chains coming. I think you'll see a lot of EVM chains launching, net new L1 EVM chains launching in 2024. I think that'll be fascinating. There's certainly a lot of things also in the Solana ecosystem that use the SVM that will be launching as well. So I think we'll just see more chains and really more decisions to make on behalf of entrepreneurs. Some of these things are easy. If you're a compliance software business, you'll just start to go wherever the users are and track fund flows. But if you're building an end user app, and you're really worried about scalability, I think there's a lot of options there. And it's going to be interesting to see how the market evolves over time in terms of what gets picked.
0: The SVM, I guess that'd be the Solana virtual machine. Is that the one that Eclipse is building? Or is that something else?
1: Eclipse is building in that ecosystem. There's probably five or six other companies that are launching over the next year in that ecosystem as well. So it's clearly a vibrant ecosystem in the Solana space. It's interesting. I think ETH, at the time of this recording, at least, is certainly from an optics perspective taking a lot of hits. But I'm quite intellectually along that community, I would say. I, I wouldn't be betting against the Ethereum community.
0: Yeah, I haven't seen this much. I don't know, maybe hate's the wrong word. For lack of a better word, hate of Ethereum for a while. So it's interesting to see.
1: It's interesting because the Solana ecosystem hasn't had to go through a lot of the turbulence that ETH has been through. It's on this upward trajectory in terms of net new products adopting. Obviously, the price has gone up, but there's always stumbling blocks. And so I think this is just a natural progression where there's a lot of excitement about Solana right now. And ETH is in the doghouse, but that's how markets work.
0: You've been investing as Castle Island for several years now. I guess this will be your second bear market that you've gone through. How have you navigated the most recent bear market just in general? And then you guys think you'll be more or less active, let's say, over the next six to 12 months, over the past six to 12 months?
1: The next six to 12 months will certainly be more active for us. and That is partially a function of the interest rate environment and just access to capital in the venture ecosystem is growing. So We're starting to see more follow-on investments, for instance. So companies where we did the series seed, going out to raise series A rounds, where we're going to be re-upping in these companies and doubling down in some cases. So the startup venture ecosystem has certainly caught a bid here over the past few months. And I think we'll see deals start to happen in Q1 that are being signed up right now. So that'll be active. The bear markets here, though, are really just about making sure that companies preserve cash. And so across the portfolio, post-FTX, And really, in the face of the rising interest rate environment, we've seen the best CEOs in our portfolio really just have the discipline around extending runway however they can. And so slowing down hiring plans, stopping expenditures in certain categories where they can, and just underwriting to business plans that don't require a capital raise during an environment where the terms are not attractive, And so that's something that we've been working hard with over the past year with all the founders in our portfolio. But a lot of catalysts on the horizon, I would say. So Fed slowing down, this Bitcoin ETF on the horizon, the Bitcoin halving, and just all these new use cases popping up on these blockchains, which is spurring a lot more new company formations. So I expect the next 12 months to be some of our most active investing.
0: Okay, great. Curious to chat with you about your Nick's social presence Nick's always had a big social presence, nothing new there. You've definitely stepped it up a bit. Definitely noticed you've been much more active on Twitter. Yeah, I'd say seems like the focus has been pointing out negative activity. I really enjoyed seeing that. But you guys also have a podcast. You've done, I think, close to 500 episodes now. I've enjoyed many of those myself. You guys have a newsletter. Is there a defined strategy around all of the social things that you guys are doing, social and content, and how does that relate to... Castle Island and benefiting you guys in terms of deal flow and reputation. Just kind of curious what you've seen there and what's the strategy?
1: I would say some of it started very intentional and some of it was quite organic. And so the first thing that we started was a newsletter back in 2016 that was originally just at Fidelity. And so we would send out the same newsletter that you can get on our website. But really, the emphasis in the early days was here are the top three news stories of the week. And here are the venture deals that got done this week. And selfishly, it was just to get people more excited about the industry. It was to say, look, there's actually real dollars going in here. We have real venture capital firms that are investing in some of these startups. You have financial institutions that are making very meaningful plays, that are doing strategic investments. And so it was really just to educate. And that got a lot of engagement. So when we left to start Castle Island, we took that outside of the four walls of Fidelity. It's just been a great way to educate folks that are in the investor community around what's going on. And so that continues. The second thing was the podcast. And the original idea with the podcast was actually just a way to meet more founders. And so we had this list of all these talented founders that we wanted to get in front of. And it was just so much easier to say, hey, can we come to your office and record an episode about your company? Who wouldn't want to do that? And so we ended up sourcing deals that way. We met some outstanding people in the ecosystem just by letting them tell their stories. And people love to talk about what they're building. And so that has been a great way to engage. Over time, that started to get a life of its own, where we started to have politicians start to ask to come on the podcast, we started to really expand the scope of it. And then yeah, on the social, I'd say it hasn't really been a deliberate strategy. But you point out that I've been calling out some of these scammers for the past year or so. And I think that's one of my biggest regrets about this industry is that A lot of us saw some of this behavior that was happening. We obviously didn't know how fraudulent it was. But there were a lot of people that saw things and didn't say anything. And so I've really tried to correct some of that. And I think the only way for this industry to really mature is to self-police and to point out some of the bad actors and to point out some of the things that just would never exist in a regulated TradFi market that really just shouldn't exist in crypto. And so these conflicts of interest that some of these companies have had... Some of these shady practices around token launching, we've certainly had our fair share of engagement on Twitter just by pointing out some of these things over the years. That extends actually to the regulatory apparatus and just some of the things that have happened at the SEC, I would say, around the proximity to FTX and almost giving them some sort of a safe harbor, no action letter type of a setup. So we've been pretty active on just pointing out some of the irregularities from a behavioral perspective.
0: Yeah. As I mentioned, earlier, I've really been enjoying it. Definitely keep it up. And it's great to see that. I've probably read your newsletter every week or almost every week now for years. Yeah. For anyone out there, definitely sign up. It's awesome. The question I kind of ask everyone on here is, you guys operate in a competitive market as a venture firm. Your job is to get the best founders to take your capital, obviously picking companies as well and various other things. But how do you guys win deals? How do you convince founders to work with you what does your role look like post-investment as well?
1: So there's a few prongs of this. One is we invest a lot in financial services infrastructure companies. And so we've really been intentional about building out networks at all of the big places like Fidelity and Goldman and Boney that are attempting to build out their own crypto tokenization platforms. And so we've really sold aggressively by being able to insert our startups into some of those companies very early. So companies like Talos, companies like Coinmetrics that through some of our relationships were able to really accelerate their commercial go-to-market pre-series A by getting firmly entrenched and in some cases actually bringing investment dollars to work from some of these big institutions, these banks, these asset managers. So that's something that we continue to spend a lot of time on. We have a view that every bank and broker dealer will have to be in this market at some point in the near future. And so there's a lot of opportunities for companies that would naturally be selling products into those channels. We think we're very well positioned there. I'd say the second thing is really around the content strategy. And so you mentioned the podcast, we've done something like 490 episodes of this podcast, it's taken on a life of its own. But it's a great place for founders to come on and talk about what they're building and get inbound interest on their product. And so we really see ourselves as being able to just accelerate the awareness of these things in a way that doesn't require you to go spend marketing dollars
0: do you find that it's mostly the interest to participate in that content, the market awareness that it brings given the reach you guys have? Or is it more the fact that they're very familiar with Castle Island because of the content you put out there and just your brand is more omnipresent that drives that?
1: So it's fascinating because we never thought about that when we started the podcast. But I can't tell you how many times we do a first Zoom call with an entrepreneur and they say, Oh, I feel like I've known you for a long time. I've been listening to your podcast for three or four years. And so there's... Folks that listen to the podcast, I would say, know what we think about certain categories. They know what is thesis compatible. Probably saves us a lot of time because we're not speaking with entrepreneurs that just know for a fact we're not investing in a certain category or we're already investors and a competitor or something like that. So that's been terrific. And so I think there's two angles to the podcast. One is just the reach and being able to get companies in front of thousands of people every week if they come on the show but also just accelerating our underwriting. It's really a marriage when you make an investment in a company. These things can last 10 years. You're spending a lot of time with people. And so anything that you can do to accelerate the understanding of the relationship and just see where people are coming from, that goes a long way. And so our voices have been recorded for hundreds of hours at this point, talking about topics ranging from turkeys in our backyards to the regulatory landscape. There's a lot of content out there on us for people to study. The
0: backyard turkeys sound much more interesting than the regulatory landscape. Do you ever listen to your own podcasts?
1: I do. Yeah, we quality control it. I end up listening on 2x speed sometimes just to make sure that some of the typos and the ums and the likes have been cut.
0: Backyard turkeys might be more interesting. We're going to talk about the regulatory environment anyways. I guess just as putting on your venture hat, what are you paying attention to? What are you watching specifically within a US context for now? What do you feel like matters and why?
1: So there's three bills that really would be impactful to this industry if they were to go through. One is the uniform treatment of digital assets bill, which would open up the ability for banks to compete in the custody industry. And So this is a bipartisan bill. Richie Torres is behind it, Democrat out of New York. It would remove this SEC guidance around the treatment from an accounting perspective of crypto assets. So right now there's something called Staff Accounting Bulletin 121, that says that if you're a bank in the United States and you hold crypto on behalf of your customers, you need to treat that asset as if it's an asset of the bank itself and hold capital against it. So you have an asset that you can charge 45 basis points to custody, but you have to hold 500 basis points of regulatory capital. makes no sense whatsoever. This bill would repeal that. I think if you saw the repeal of that in 2024, you'd see banks entering the space and banks trying to be the custodian for some of these ETFs. So I think that would be huge. The second thing is a stablecoin bill. So it's fascinating right now the battles that are going on in this dimension around can you be a stablecoin issuer out of a state trust license? Do you have to be a federal bank in order to issue a stablecoin? But really, stablecoins have emerged as this killer use case for the technology. And having a cohesive regulatory framework in the US would be such a competitive advantage for the country in terms of being able to export dollars at global scale. I think it would really entrench the dollar as the apex predator of fiat currencies for 50 years into the future, probably. So that's a really interesting one to watch. And then the last one is now called the FIT Act. But this is a comprehensive market structure bill that would give clarity on whether or not tokens are securities versus commodities. It would have some element of this safe harbor that we talked about earlier and it would also just open up the the broker dealers and the banks to be able to transact and spot crypto so that would be a, an enormous one. So those are the three that we're tracking. They're not going to happen this calendar year obviously we're already at the end of 2023 but we'd like to see some movement on some of those bills in 2024.
0: Okay, and just to be clear you would see those passing all as positive for the industry.
1: I think they would be tremendously positive for the industry. There's certainly some negative bills that have been put out there. Senator in my home state, Elizabeth Warren, has had her fair share of negative crypto bills proposed, but none of those have gotten legs so far. So we're really focused on the three that could totally change the market structure for this in the United States.
0: In light of the negative regulatory environment in the US, you as investors, has Castle Island spent more time looking at deals outside the US? Are you pretty US centric? You mentioned yellow card, I think in Africa. Pintu and in, in Indonesia, so you have been active outside the U.S. historically, but how has that changed over the past, let's say, 18 months or so?
1: We've always been active in categories that we think have to exist and that are already proven in the U.S. So yellow card and Pintu on the brokerage and exchange front have been really good investments for us. We are spending more time looking outside the U.S. just based on some of the regulatory clarity that has come to market in some of these jurisdictions. And so MICA in Europe, for instance, has been a really interesting development. I think you're going to see more banks come into the European market, compete in this space. So MICA opens up the doors here. We've unfortunately seen some entrepreneurs leave the U.S. to start businesses in London on the back of some of this regulatory clarity with the FCA as well. So something to keep an eye on. I'd still say roughly 80% of our investments over the life of the funds have all been in the U.S., but outside the U.S. is certainly worth paying attention to.
0: And I know that you guys have spent some time outside the U.S. talking with regulators in other countries. How do those conversations differ from talking to regulators here in the U.S.?
1: they're generally a lot more positive, if I'm being honest. And so we've spent time talking to securities regulators in Singapore. We spent a lot of time in Bermuda, which is really trying to emerge as a sandbox hub for this type of innovation. Now, I will just say in the US, there are quite a few regulators who really get this stuff, including several at the SEC in very senior roles. And so it's not necessarily that the U.S. apparatus writ large is trying to move slow. There are people, and it's honestly, it's not a majority, but it's pretty close. There's a lot of really talented people at a number of these agencies in the U.S. I think the head of the SEC is hostile. I certainly think the senior senator in Massachusetts is hostile and has a lot of say in who the head of the SEC is. And so I think there's maybe this perception that all of the US is hostile, but I think that could switch pretty quickly. And the elections will have a big part of that. And so there's a lot of younger candidates that are emerging in some of these House races. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here in the 2024 elections, not necessarily at the presidential level, but really at the House in some of these swing seats in the Senate, where you have opposition candidates who have come out very publicly in support of emerging technology and Bitcoin blockchain technology. So there's a lot of reason to be optimistic.
0: Okay, interesting. You mentioned some of the bills that have been taking a lot of consideration. We may or may not see them happen in 2024, but do you see things being better or worse within the US for entrepreneurs here in three to five years?
1: I see things being better principally because politicians are aging out of these seats. And so. It's not really a partisan issue. I think it's more of an age issue. And so the younger generation of leaders that are starting to run for some of these House seats, for instance, start to run for some of the interesting Senate seats that are opening up, they tend to be more technologically savvy. So just the natural progression of this is towards better understanding of the technology over time. I think the next few years will be markably better uh, than the last three years, really just driven by the political landscape. The last thing I'd maybe say on that is that the courts have been very effective in shooting down some of this administrative state over-regulation in the category. And so I think we'll continue to see wins in the courts, which will have a meaningful impact.
0: Yeah, that's definitely been great to see. So by the time this episode airs, it might be that we already have a Bitcoin ETF, but we don't as of this recording. From your perspective, this has been in the works for a decade. Does it really matter at this point? Does that actually provide more accessibility to folks, or is it just an exciting validation from an institutional perspective?
1: I think it matters if you just look at the RIA channel. It's something like a $7 trillion channel that is effectively 0% penetrated. There are a couple of products that you can buy that are non-ETFs that have some flows, but really this is an entire channel that is opening up. So I think it matters. I also think it will be an interesting way for the banks to get involved in this industry particularly since these products will unfortunately be cash create. And so a lot of these banks will become authorized participants in creating shares of these ETFs. Then they won't have to touch the underlying, at least until there's an in-kind model that's approved. But I think it will drag a bunch of these banks into the industry. They'll have to pay attention to the spot market. So if you just look at it from a fund flows perspective, and then from a underlying microstructure perspective, there's going to be a lot more attention on this industry. So to me, it's not a sell the news type of event. I think that it's properly hyped.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I know you guys are investors in Eaglebrook, which is pretty active in the RIA world. So I guess what you're seeing there is that there's demand for Bitcoin, but they don't really at scale have proper products to actually access it in a way that's appropriate for them or that they feel comfortable with.
1: Yeah, and Eaglebrook's an interesting one to think about in the context of an ETF, because that's a separately managed account platform working with financial advisors, and it will do a breadth of assets, right? So they have hundreds of assets that can be deployed again. So I think the natural progression here for a financial advisor is probably to say, okay, we could do the Bitcoin ETF, but... I can actually generate more fee income myself if I'm able to use an SMA wrapper on these things and I'm able to give a diversity of end assets. And so maybe you do want Solana in a portfolio. Maybe you do want some of these longer tail assets as a small percentage of your total crypto allocation. So to me, this separately managed account structure is just far better. For something like that. There's really not going to be any ETF options outside of BTC and maybe Ethereum next year. So that SMA wrapper, I think, is really compelling.
0: You mentioned your guys' focus on financial services with crypto, relationships that you guys have within the industry. I'm curious, do you continue to see institutional market players, more traditional guys? Have they continued to move into the space over the past year? Have they been dismayed by the bear market and some of the activity that we saw from a negative perspective in 2022. I'm curious like what you've seen trend-wise there.
1: So the banks have really been stymied, I'd say, and it's principally because of this staff accounting bulletin guidance, this SAB 121 issue. So that all of the banks that wanted to be in the custody race, that wanted to be BlackRock's custodian, for instance, on the Bitcoin ETF, they've really been hamstrung. Other market participants, not so much. So I'd say the asset management category has really expanded. So BlackRock has entered the fray. Franklin Templeton has a big build out on the product side. Obviously, Fidelity has been in it for a long time. So we've seen all sorts of new entrants in the asset management category, not so much on the banks, not so much on the broker-dealers, but I'd say it's really regulatory that's holding back a lot of these firms. It's not that they don't think that this is going to be around. I see very few firms that are entirely dismissive. They might be excited about the things that are not Bitcoin and ETH, to be clear. So a lot of the thesis of some of these TradFi firms is around tokenization of securities bringing other types of asset classes on chain. And I think all that will happen. It's choose your own adventure in terms of the thesis, but they all have this commonality that blockchain infrastructure is going to power all of these commercial efforts. And so they're all accelerating, trying to figure out, okay, how would I custody this? How would I actually trade these assets? So I haven't seen any shortage of attention there, but I just have seen roadblocks from a regulatory perspective on the banks and broker-dealers that have hamstrung the market.
0: Got it. So if we see... SAB 121 repealed, allows the banks to custody crypto assets. Do some of those guys actually have custody products ready to go where as soon as that's done, if that does happen, they can enter the market instantly or do they still have a lot of building out to do?
1: Some of them have already built out the entire custody stack. They literally have a working product that they cannot put dollars or Bitcoin into. So
0: switching topics a bit, curious if there's a deal that really stands out to you as one you guys passed on and you're just really kicking yourself on.
1: <laughs> I remember you asked me this question a couple of years ago. So we had passed on FTX in the early days, not because we knew it was a fraud, but because they had this Alameda research thing. And in my rationale at the time was that just seems like a crazy conflict. I don't know how you could take a company public if you own an exchange and a market maker. But then the thing went up. 100x, 200x from the valuation that we could have been in at. So for a long time, I would have answered that question FTX. Now I'm obviously really happy we didn't do the deal. So it's just funny how you see the psychology of these markets make you second guess yourself. I would say one that sticks out, though, is Dune. So Dune Analytics, which I think is just an awesome product. We probably had an opportunity to do something there, didn't prosecute it, but a way that obviously we ended up investing in it. That's one that comes to mind. That company's done really well. It's a product that I use a lot. I'll go with Dune as my answer, not FTX.
0: Okay, cool. And I guess move any things that you haven't passed on. If you look at your current portfolio, are there a couple of deals that you can speak to that you're just really excited about they're doing well, or maybe recent deals that you'd like to highlight?
1: Sure. Yeah. We recently invested in a company called Cat Labs, which is at the intersection of cybersecurity and compliance. So working with governments to identify stolen, seized assets, tracked down bad guys interacting with blockchains. They have some really unique approaches to identifying funds and eventually apprehending those funds, and then tracking those funds once they're actually in law enforcement's hands. So really tracking the chain of custody, making sure that they cannot be reseized by the criminals, which is this crazy concept that does happen. And so if you don't move the wallets and sweep into new accounts, obviously, if there's a seed phrase out there, it can be retaken. So Cat Labs is a business that I think the market needs right now. We need to really cut down on the amount of bad behavior happening on these blockchains. And we need companies like Cat Labs to step into that void. So that would be one. Another one would be Talos. And so the big thesis there since 2018 is just around trade execution. So these are different type of markets. These are different type of assets. They don't reside at the DTCC. So you need to rethink what your order management platform looks like, what your portfolio management platform looks like. So Talos has been really successful in getting involved in some of these large asset management firms that are uh, pushing out ETFs.
0: If you weren't doing crypto or tech or VC, what would you do for a living? How would you make money?
1: If crypto didn't exist, I'd probably be like a management consultant. I really loved doing that. I love doing it on the inside of companies, less so on just parachuting into a company every three or four months and doing a project. But I really loved the ability to get involved in a business, really understand the key strategy elements that needed to be prosecuted, and put a plan in place in order to correct these things and just work on a really intense, high performance. So management consulting was just an awesome way to start a career. And I probably would have followed that thread on the exterior side, and then maybe hopped off and tried to run a business for a client or something like that. But I'm very happy crypto happened because I much prefer doing what I'm doing.
0: now. Yeah, yeah, likewise. What kind of businesses did you consult for back in your management consulting days?
1: So I did a huge project for a Honduran bank that was really transformative for me. So I got into the nuts and bolts of just how money flows at an international level. And we went really deep in the risk management department of how banks work. And so that was one that later became just incredibly relevant when I started to understand crypto and stable coins. So that was a really cool one. But I did all sorts of projects. I liquidated a hardwood flooring company in Quebec once. Went in and you know, had to speak French and really get involved in that business. So they were all over the place. When I was at Clear Channel, it was a radio station company, so spent a lot of time just understanding the progression of terrestrial radio and how that would uh, transform. We were working on something called the iHeart Media app at the time, which later became a Pandora competitor. We bounced around, but I'd say the financial services ones were the one that really sunk my teeth into.
0: Do you speak French?
1: I grew up in a French immersion program in the public school in my town where the first two years, so first grade and second grade, we literally didn't learn English. And so everything was taught in French. And then from third grade through about seventh grade, it was about half of the day was taught in French. So I learned math and French and I didn't retain as much of it as I probably should have. But for some time, I was pretty fluent.
0: Okay, interesting. When you were working with the Honduran bank, did you get to go hang out in Honduras for a couple months?
1: We did. Yeah. I, th- I was only like 23 years old at the time. So it was just an awesome time to be down there. Got to go scuba diving on the weekends. It was just an incredible time. Really an awesome country. They overthrew their president maybe four months after the project was over. So I think we got out at the right time, though.
0: I can see why you like that gig, though. So we talked about it a bit already. Where can folks find you and Castle Island online?
1: Castleisland.vc is our website. My Twitter is Matt Walsh in Boston. So in Boston would love to chat. So best way to get in touch is usually on Twitter.
0: Awesome. This is a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us, Matt.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Brooke.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. You can find this and other episodes on any podcast player or at our website,
1: www.hutcapital.com.